0: Welcome to the Theology Mill, brought to you by Whitfenstock Publishers. I'm your host, Zach Mickel. In this podcast, we interview some of the leading authors in theology, biblical studies, philosophy, and more. Many of the folks we talk with on the show are also authors with us at Whitfenstock, where we have the honor of putting into print a broad swath of work that nourishes both the academy and the church. On this episode, I interviewed Dr. Jordan Daniel Wood. Dr. Wood recently published a really exciting book with the University of Notre Dame Press, which is called The Whole Mystery of Christ, Creation as Incarnation in Maximus the Confessor. He received his PhD in theology from Boston College and is a stay-at-home father of four girls, which is quite a feat, I have to say. In this interview for our podcast series The Grind, Dr. Wood and I discuss his intellectual formation, his experiences as a a PhD student and young scholar, how he's carved his own way as an academic, and a whole lot more. So without further ado, friends, let's head over to the interview. So I'm here with Dr. Jordan Daniel Wood, um, who je- whose book just dropped, what, two, two weeks ago?
1: Yeah, pretty much two weeks ago, yeah.
0: Very, very, yeah. So um, the whole mystery of Christ is what it's called, right? Creation mm-hmm. as incarnation in Maximus Confessor. So that's with Notre Dame Press, which, by the way, I don't know how much, like how closely you got to work with the people there, but they are wonderful. Like I've gotten the chance to interact with them a bit and... Um, yeah, they're just such, they're just good people, but also they're, yeah, I mean, you know, this, their publishing list is, is really fantastic too. So
1: yeah, no, they were great to work with very easy, very, uh, the, you know, firing on all cylinders all the time. So yes,
0: yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. So let's, um, let's talk about, well, let's talk about what we're drinking. So I, I am drinking a, a matcha tea right here, which is my new morning go-to. I've actually only been drinking matcha. For like the past couple of months um i yeah some of my friends kind of converted me from coffee to tea and then to matcha um, which has been kind of a, a life changer but so this is what i'm drinking here naoki mm. matcha um of course it's right it's uh, ceremonial grade it's from uh grown in uji kyoto um it's the only matcha i've ever had honestly but it's so so good it's delicious. so i'm drinking it in like a latte form with raw milk, which I hope is not too controversial for people, but I find it to be delicious and it doesn't upset my stomach. So, uh, wow. yeah, but anyways, it's delicious. Uh, what are you sipping on?
1: Well, I just have, I, I've just got a, um, brick and mortar, like light roast coffee here. I don't really know. Like the, the thing is, so what I do because I have to work in the wee hours of the morning, yeah, I like set. I have a very cheap coffee maker, probably like a $15 one. <laughs> and I grind, I grind the beans the night before I set everything up to where I just have to push a button when I wake up. I just want to, okay. to push one button. So sometimes I forget what I've which beans I have ground. But I think this one's Yeah, just the like, well, grocery store brick and it's called brick and mortar. Okay, Ethiopia, light roast. Nice. So that's what
0: I got. Ethiopian's yep. my favorite.
1: Nice. It's so good. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Can you tell like which roast you're drinking by like the flavor if you're not sure what you put in?
1: You know, yes, I can, and I, it's funny. I didn't drink coffee or really anything like that until I was 27, Okay. which wow. which was the very week that my first daughter was born. Okay. <laughs> so I was like, well, since I'm a dad, I may as well just jump. Hit, you know, <laughs> I was like. And then I was like, well, if I'm going to do this, like, I hate coffee. My mom loved it. My mom or my dad to this day doesn't drink it. But um, I was like, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm not, I'm not going to do all the sugar and everything. Like, I just want to go straight black. I don't like wow. it anyway. may as well. So I always just straight black. That's what I love. And, um, yeah, wow. so no, I be- so that means I began like, oh, I'm not going to be one of those coffee snobs. Yeah. You know? and, and then, like, of course, yeah. here I am, what, eight? Eight years later, I was just thinking like yesterday, like, you know, this tastes a little different in this mug
0: as opposed to this other one. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, what have I become? That's (laughs) so funny. I feel like I've not, I don't know that I've met anybody who started with black coffee. It's like usually always like you start with mochas and lattes and then you, because black coffee doesn't taste good when you're first starting. How long did it take you before you were like, this is actually an enjoyable cup?
1: I would say a few months after Uh a few months i was like i don't know i'm I'm sure there's some kind of uh you know psychological revelation in this (laughs) for about me where it's like i just went from zero to a hundred and was just like give me the worst thing i i will i will force (laughs) myself i will conform to it you know so anyway
0: sure, Sure. (laughs) nice very cool okay well let's dive into uh yeah let's dive into some some material here um you are a student of historical theology, right? So that's what you did your PhD in at Boston mm-hmm. College under Boyd Taylor Kuhlman. So what like, why historical theology? What what interested you there?
1: Um, yeah, so historical theology is is this strange hybrid of as it says history, and like, like, you might think church history or history of Christianity, and then theology in the sense of systematic or constructive, uh um, contemporary theology. And <laughs> what that often means is we're sort of, um, vulnerable in two directions, you know, because it's like the historians are like, what are you doing? And then the theologians are like, why are you doing all this history? And so, so, you know, that's, it's a, uh, it's an inherent risk in the enterprise, but I, I chose historical theology. I mean, for me, really the way I approach all of theology, it's been, and I think a lot of people do, but it's highly autobiographical. So like, I, mm-hmm. I, I grew up in a tradition that, didn't know much of anything about the, um, or didn't talk about or teach or really care a whole lot about, say the, uh, the greater Christian tradition throughout the ages. And so, and particularly of course, so the, so the Bible was the center. It's like everything you, you spend all your time there, you learn the languages and so forth. But, um, but I sort of got, I caught wind that maybe Christians hadn't always read scripture the way I was being led to read it mm. and um, and that sort of in particularly I caught uh, I heard this name origin of Alexandria you know from the second third century and how he did these wild allegorical readings and these weird figurative spiritual readings of like Noah's Ark and everything under the sun and and actually I instead of turning me off to that I was actually very intrigued by that so that was my entree into Church history, like, so my point is that I was already, I had questions about what the Bible really is, and what it means to call Mm -hmm. it inspired, and how then we're supposed to approach it and interpret it. What is the right way to handle it, etc.? I was already motivated by these theological existential questions, but that sent me to history. That sent me to, like, well, how have other Christians... Have they asked these questions? Turns out most of the time the questions I asked weren't so unique or, or original. They've been there forever. And then of course there were, you know, quite there's quite a rich discussion around it that stretches mm-hmm. across the ages and different continents and languages and so forth. So yeah. that that was like already autobiographically that was my um, even that was my interest in history. It wasn't simply antiquarian, it wasn't just like, Oh, I wanna I wanna be a scholar of the seventh century or something like that. It was uh... It was what did these people say about God and Christ and scripture Mm. and reading it and then, you know, and then all these other questions that arise. So historical theology for me, what it functionally meant, um, because actually when I was admitted to the Ph.D. program, they right up front said, we're not really sure whether to place you in historical theology or in Mm. systematics.
0: Okay.
1: And I was kind of like, well, that's good because I don't know either, you know, (laughs) but uh, but it was what I what I thought was this i sort of made an analogy to um to artists or like a painter and if you're going to i have some friends that are that are painters and it's like you know one of the things that they did in their formation was to imitate the masters right mm-hmm. to recreate um you know da vinci's this or that or caravaggio or whatever <clears throat> and it's not like you're you know you're doing it and just as, as if you're a musician or, or a sports player or whatever you're doing it in order to make the technique inherent mm-hmm. and, and you're sort of, you know, it's Aristotelian. It's like you practice through habit, you become, it becomes second nature. And then only, only then when you sort of mastered the techniques by imitating a grand master, then you start to add your own flares, your own personal style, as it were, and you start to really then legitimately become a creator yourself. And so Mm -hmm. I felt like it was and it's not to denigrate anyone out there. I know some great people that are PhD in systematics and they're doing fine. But Mm -hmm. for me personally, I was like, it was sort of daunting to be like, hey, you're going to write a dissertation that's an actual contribution to like systematic Christian theology, even though it's the first thing you've ever really done. And I was kinda of like, uh, that feels like backwards to me. For me, I wanna I wanna yeah. apprentice myself to some master or or group of masters. You can only do so much, <clears throat> and I wanna learn the techniques, I wanna imitate, I wanna follow, I want to I wanna immerse myself in the in the entire thought and theological vision of someone who is compelling and who is a master, and then maybe at some point or maybe not, mm-hmm. but maybe at some point I will be able to make something like my own personal uh, style contributions to the whole to the whole tradition and so that that's to me broadly why historical theology and it's why I, i personally chose that and it is a personal choice so
0: yeah no that's really interesting i feel like i i feel like a lot of dissertations in systematic theology are kind of historically thin like you're talking about like i and even not even just dissertations, but honestly, I feel like a lot of theologians who work in systematics, like it, it seems like sometimes that there's not always a strong grasp of like the tradition. And even if they're consulting the tradition, it just seems like a rather like thin retrieval versus thick retrieval, which is kind of more what, what you're up to.
1: Yeah. And it's, you know, it's... uh to me, there's sort of two categories of some of the people I've met, and uh, of course I won't name names because I want to be want yeah. <laughs> to be amicable. But um, you know, there there are some people on sort of one extreme end of the spectrum who basically write up their entire dissertation proposal, and I I mean they would come back after meeting with their advisor and say, you oh, know, man, now I got to make this theological somehow, <laughs> you know, mm. and I'm I'm kind of yeah. like, well, you know, this is a the theology department, like <laughs> you could have done this thing anywhere else. But um, right, right. so so it really did feel like an extrinsic or an additional sort of component that they had to do to sort of dress it up, uh, and it's sort of beside the point of the substance of what they really wanted to do. That right. was one sort of thing I saw happen pretty often, and I was like, you know, I don't want to do that. Like that's not why I'm here. But the other thing is like, you know, it was sort of a joke that in some departments, and I can't speak for for you know all by any means. But if you're a systematic theologian, it basically meant you did end up doing historical theology. It's just yeah. that your person was like of the last hundred years rather yeah. than way back. And, you know. So it's like yeah. you write a dissertation on Balthazar or you write a dissertation on Lonergan or Barth or whoever, Jungle yeah. And it's like s- somehow you're you're a systematic theologian just because you wrote on someone who died more recently. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. but but methodologically and functionally you're you're doing the same thing. So anyway,
0: but totally, totally, yeah, yeah. So so would you say your master is Maximus then?
1: Yeah, and he and it wasn't yeah. what I intended. I know we have a okay. question about that later, but yeah, yeah. The, yeah, yeah. He became that, and, and I can't see myself ever shaking him entirely. I and mean, he's always going to be he's always going to be that guide for me
0: sure sure so like why why maximus you said you hadn't originally planned on that so what kind of sparked that interest well well to
1: be honest uh <laughs> it was extremely mundane trivial it was very practical i i had i arrived at boston college initially it was that but quickly it became something else i arrived at boston college sort of with the intention i wanted to do greek patristics i thought i was going to write a dissertation probably on st gregory of nyssa Mm-hmm. Um, he was someone who really captivated me by then and he, and, and I still consider him among, among the masters for me, but, mm-hmm. um, and, 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 uh, I was going to do this, you know, under, uh, Father Khalid Anatolios, who, who was at BC for a mm-hmm. long time, but I didn't know that exactly when I was coming in, he was leaving for Notre Dame. <laughs> so, uh, okay. Okay. So when I arrived at BC, there was a hole for a while. They hadn't they hadn't even gotten Father uh, Brian Dunkel, who's really good, who's there now. But um, they hadn't gotten him yet either. So really, my first semester, I was just like looking around, like, "Well, hold on a second, I'm majoring in Greek Patristics. I got like, what, what am I going to do?" So they have they're a part of a consortium, and like you can take classes at other institutions up there. Okay. So I went to Hellenic, Holy Cross Hellenic, and like because Father Maximus Nicholas Constas. Who, okay. who is the who's sort of the great translator of Maximus into English of say the past decade? Um, he had just come out with his Ambigua translation, Maximus's Ambigu mm-hmm. in two volumes with Dunbar and Oaks, and basically was just teaching a class on it. And I was like, uh, I would that's cool. Like I've read Maximus. I've read that little popular Patristics volume, that blue one, Cosmic yeah. Mystery of Press. Yeah. Like, I, and he was really interesting, you know. So let's take yeah. this class. And, uh, and I even showed up the first day not knowing if I was going to be able to stay there because I, I had misregistration and all this stuff. So anyway, I just show up to his class. I'm like, hey, uh, I would love to, uh, you know, be in your class even though I'm not part of your institution and stuff. Yeah. And uh, he graciously allowed me to stay. And honestly, within about two, three weeks of reading, just reading, all we did was read Maximus. We didn't read like, anything else. Um, I was hooked. I was kind of like, okay, this is, this is not – This is far more than I expected and far more fascinating. So that's kind of how it happened. Yeah. Awesome.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to talk a little more about like your theological formation. I know you had mentioned earlier how you grew up in a different tradition. And Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm looking at your CV right now. I see you went to, you did your undergrad at Ozark Christian College. Yeah. And then... You moved to St. Louis University for your master's SLU, as they call it, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And then you did some study in France and then your PhD in historical theology at Boston College, like you said. So so if you could like quickly kind of sum up your trajectory through through all those stages, how would you describe kind of your theological formation?
1: Yeah, so so yeah, and we've already touched on it, so this will this will be able to facilitate it. I um yeah, I went to Ozark Christian College. It's in this movement called the Stone Campbell Movement, the Restoration Movement. There's different ways to call it. But it's basically like, like uh, Christian churches, Disciples of Christ, Church of Christ. Mm-hmm. All of them are from that. And it's, you know, it's, um, there's, I don't want to, you know, I, all my family is still in that tradition. So I, I've, and I, there's a lot that I appreciate about it. Among which was, you know, when I was an 18-year-old going to Bible college at 7 o'clock every morning, for four days a week, I was taking Greek Uh, you know, and I took, yeah, I took, and actually the Ozark where I was, the, it was kind of this amazing moment where there was so much possibility to especially develop linguistic skills, so I took like Mm -hmm. three years of Greek, I took two years of Hebrew, I took a semester of Aramaic, I sat in on Ugaritic, and there's Akkadian, and you, I did start German and Latin there, and all this stuff, so so it's kind of like catching up from, you know, I was a public school guy, so, you know, we didn't do much but read you know, uh, I don't know, Shakespeare a thousand times. Yeah. So, so I was, uh, read Ray Bradbury or something. Yeah. Um, so I was, um, so that was, I appreciated all that, but as I said before, over the course of my time there, it was just very thin on what, what I would call philosophical theology or systematic theology. Now I didn't know that was the name then, but it was kind of, honestly, it was sort of funny cause I felt like I recapitulated in my own self to be a little, uh, audacious here kind of like the 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 actual unfolding of christian thought over its own tradition insofar Mm -hmm. as for me the scripture was central and you're studying it in depth and naturally questions arise and you say well hold on a second you know there's these five times in the old testament where god seems to command the genocide of all these people is that just did that is that is like does god do that i mean you know and so you so you start raising questions, especially in light of the uh, the incarnation, in the light of Christ, and you know here here we have Christ who, while we were yet sinners and hostile to God, He died for us,
0: mm-hmm.
1: who who is sort of self giving to the most infinite degree imaginable, really not imaginable, and yet also is the same God consubstantial kind of with the, the the you know the Father and the Spirit, who in the Old Testament seems to on the surface command genocide, and and so mm-hmm. these are obvious. These are, to me at least, obvious tensions at, at best, we'll say, mm-hmm. tensions. So they create, that tension creates uh, um, questions. And so really the questions arose out of studying scripture in that certain context. So yeah. that's why I was like, how did how did other people read this? Sir, I, I had heard about origin in a negative light. So I went to SLU then, the next step, because there was an origin scholar there. He's still there named Dr. Okay. Peter Martins. I studied with him, and I wrote a thesis on Origin there that became my first article. And it really was my question. I, like I went there and I said, I just want to know why Origin thought he could get away with reading Scripture this way, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And I want an answer better than like, well, he was Greek, and you know, all this influence uh, of Plato, yeah. and like, no. well, like, sure. okay, there's some of that, but did he have actual Christian theological reasons right. to justify the way he handled, say? Uh, the uh, conquest narratives of Joshua in his homilies, which he preached over them, you know, and uh, wherein he says, I do not think that the apostles would have handed down this text to be uh, as scripture unless they wanted us to read it allegorically or figuratively for it is written Mm. that Christ is, you know, uh, the Prince of Peace. So, so like that, that was so much what I did there. And that kind of opened the the entire greater tradition to me. So the question was Mm. about scripture how to interpret it i went to origin in the alexandrian tradition and that opened up all the other stuff christology the mm-hmm. development of christology trinitarian stuff in the patristic area era broadly and into the medieval uh, era as well so that's what i when i went on, when i went to france that was just because i wanted to acquire a language an actual living i i had studied all these dead languages okay. i wanted to be able to at least speak to to some you know useful extent uh, some living language and so sure. My wife was already really good at Spanish. Uh, I didn't have a lot of interest in acquiring that because I had a bad experience in high school with Spanish. Yeah. And uh, and I wanted to do German because I thought, well, you know, that's what you do if you're in theology or whatever. Yeah. And she's <laughs> like, I don't want to do German. I have no yeah. interest in that. And so we compromised in French. But uh, So so we went there. And then, yeah, when I went to do the Boston College thing, it was, it was sort of an ex- – you know, I wanted to continue. I wanted to extend what I had begun at SLU – and um, and I wanted to study. As I said, I thought I was going to stay in the Alexandrian Greek tradition more fourth century, but I ended up coming to see that Maximus really was, in my opinion, the culmination of that. So I focused there.
0: Got it. Okay. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, what what was your experience like as a PhD student? Because I know at right, Boston College that's a pretty rigorous program. You're you know you're you're learning languages. You're studying historical theology. How did you enjoy being a PhD student? What was that experience like for you?
1: Well, I have to say, um, what made it what it was, and I, I hear this quite a bit actually, is was the uh, camaraderie, right? Mm-hmm. Was the cohort? I mean, I, I came in with um, the only two people that came in the historical program that year was uh, was me and uh, a guy named now Dr. Justin Sean mm-hmm. Coyle, who's uh, at Mount Angel, actually close to where you are, right? Um, out yeah. there. Yeah, And so Justin and I, we, but we also were poor and, um, couldn't afford to live in Boston. And we were having, yeah. like our families were growing and stuff. So we actually yeah. lived in Providence, Rhode Island. Okay. And so we would commute together up to Boston college, just he and I, most of the time with some other people sometimes. So that was like, we, and we lived on the same street, our kids started to play. So I think that was like foremost for me and our, my advisor was really good. He actually lived a few blocks over as well and his family. And there really was this kind of like community of, of, uh, um, you know, attentive to the, not just like you as an academic or as a budding scholar, but as a whole person, you know, how are your kids doing? We all sort of know each other. We help each other out. So that was like that, that is a unique thing. I I don't, you know, that's not necessarily inherent in every program or anything, but that was hugely formative for me. So much of what, um, so much of what I was thinking and how I was thinking was, was sort of, you know, set through or pushed through many conversations with many different of those, you know, those people. So that was, that was a huge part of it. Boston college itself was, was great because of the resources, Uh, they have are incredible it's not not i mean boston college is especially unique because it acquired a seminary which is which is right across the uh the street from it you know years ago and so really Mm -hmm. functionally what it means is they have a school School of theology and ministry which is what they acquired and then they have a department of theology on campus at boston college so you you effectively have two faculties of theology like two big ones two two large ones and so you've got you've got like i don't know 40, 50 full time wow. scholars there, all across and in different uh, areas and special, specialties. So you got all kinds, but not only that, you know, if you're at a place like Boston College, and there's other places where this is true too, I really made a point to take uh, some courses like in other departments, especially philosophy. Mm-hmm. So I, mm-hmm. I got to take, for example, uh, uh, two courses on Plotinus and Neoplatonism with the great Plotinus scholar, Dr. Gary Gertler, who's a Jesuit. And, um, and so there was, there was, there was just a lot of resources there and that doesn't even include the consortium and, you know, you could go take courses at Harvard or whatever, but, um, so that, so my experience there was, was, was really good, mostly due to the uh, camaraderie and kind of my advisor's uh, attentiveness to the whole person of the student rather than just what they Mm -hmm. produce. And then, um, and then, yeah, obviously, just a sort of the yeah, the resources available. It just it's just really hard to have a, <laughs> to recreate that anywhere else.
0: So. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, no. And I think it's. I mean, I, I hear it's pretty common to have kids, right? I and mean, to have you know a spouse and kids during a PhD program. But I don't know. I can only imagine what that would be like. It sounds like it would be pretty pretty challenging. So, what was that like for you being in a PhD program? you know trying to trying to care for your wife um your growing family and then even beyond that like as a as a young scholar after you finished your phd what has that been like sort of balancing family life with scholarship
1: yeah i mean it's a perennial issue i mean <laughs> probably what i'm yeah. about to say some people will laugh out loud perhaps because it's so it's just so you know <clears throat> here's the thing about like this kind of work it's hard to explain because for most people it's hot. It's a hobby to read right into right, maybe to write a little. And so there, there are, you know, people in my extended family and stuff like that. Sometimes I have a difficult time explaining like, or like this question, right. And my wife, she's awesome. She's a nurse. She's like, mm-hmm. you know, great, really great success. And in, in her career, and she's just a wonderful person. And she, you know, would come home or like one, one year I had my, dissertation year where I'm just like going into the office writing every day and you know, you come home. And of course the question is like, Oh, well, how much did you get done today? And I'm like, um, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> it's like, you can't like, it's, it's so, at least for me personally, the the process of writing, it's like, it's so far from a very clear regimented quantifiable. Like, yeah. I mean, you can say things like some days I'm like, wow, I, you know, I wrote 5,000 words today or, but then other days it's like, well, I spent eight hours on a single footnote and like <laughs> got you know two sentences down, you know. And yeah, so, yeah. and then other times you know you're staring at a blank screen, like all that stuff, all yeah. the kind of cliches, but they're 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 kind of true, is it, like is valid. But then also I think too, you know, in theology in particular, it's it's very hard because basically people just if they don't know much about the discipline, they're like what you're doing they just like, Mm -hmm. okay, so, like, you just read the Bible and, like, talk about it or what? Like, what's the, you know, because it's, everyone's trying to grasp for, like, analogs in their own experience. Yeah. And it's like, maybe they've gone to Sunday school. Maybe they've, maybe they've been a part of a book discussion one time or a book group. And they're just trying to, like, understand what it means to work all, in all this time you're spending and, right, and all this, you know, and you can, so, so all that to say, um, you know, when it comes to, like, balancing the time and to say, you know, well, I can't really go to this event or something like that. Sometimes it's it's hard to navigate those situations. But that said, um, I mean, I've been fortunate. My my wife is extremely uh, understanding and empathetic, and she has really been supportive. In fact, I would say there there were several moments where I was the one that was kind of like, why am I doing this? Like, what's what's the point of this? Like, we make hardly any money. We're we're so far away from family. We're trying to grow a family. Like literally across the country from all of our actual family that could help we don't have any we don't have money to pay for babysitters we don't pay for daycare so it's one of us is always with the kids um you know what and so and she was the one that'd be like you know like you know this is inherently like because i'm like what's the point of this like no one cares about what i think about this stuff and um and she would be the one that would you know protest against my, uh, hmm. my sort of sappy, you know, why, uh, what was me thing, you know, and <laughs> yeah. be like, you know, no, this is important. Like we're here to do this. We're all committed. And so, you know, yeah. there, there's a lot of times where PhD students, you know, marriages fall apart,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, families, uh, bad habits get started so that there's distance between, you know, the kids and stuff. And I, I, I couldn't stress more. Like it, it's an entire commitment of the whole family. It's not just you yeah you know being real smart and studious and reading a bunch and writing a bunch it's like it, it's gonna it's creates weird demands that are hard to communicate to to anyone yeah. that hasn't experienced it or hasn't been close to it right mm-hmm. and so um and so everyone has to kind of be on board about what what it, what it is we're doing and how we're going to have to do it and so and i and i was very fortunate to have that with my family and you know, even now. So now I'm a stay-at-home dad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mm-hmm. after I grad, after I got my PhD, I did teach two years uh, as a VAP, a visiting professor at Providence College, which was very close to me, and I, I okay. loved it. Um, I got to teach in their kind of Great Books program as well as theology, nice. um, and and then uh, I did do. Let's see. And, oh, and then I yeah, this was the middle of the pandemic. We were kind of at that point, you know, VAPs are limited. I knew there's a there's a time limit to this. It's not going to go on forever, at least in the way they had it set up there. And so I had this offer to take a high school job, actually at my wife's alma mater back here close to family. Oh, wow.
0: wow okay. So
1: I took this theology teaching job, uh, teaching uh, at an all-girls Catholic school. I've got four girls. It's like, well, whatever. Okay. I just got yeah. – it's just girls everywhere, so – uh, so I so it's like it's all I know now even though I grew up as one of three boys now all I know is girls so um so I I, I was teaching mainly juniors and seniors like theology and philosophy uh and so, some of it for college credit but mostly just for their high school thing and um I took that job for one year uh to kind of get us here it was the middle of pandemic it was just like you know what we've got we're 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 basically intending to have a fourth kid. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And and so it kind of locked into place. A few things did. And so we moved back here. I taught high school for one year. I was also I also adjuncted a little bit since then. And so but here I am now and now for a full year, I, I think it's been I've I've been a stay at home dad.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I've got four daughters and I, I do the stay at home dad thing. And my wife being a nurse, she she's full time. Mm-hmm. But she, she, you know, and this is, look, this is a huge perk, she works three long days a week, 12-hour shifts, yeah. yeah. which means that I get a, f- a day or two a week where I can kind of work on my own stuff, like part-time right. at, from right. home. And so that that does create its own tensions, and you got to navigate stuff because you know when things come up or there's appointments or kids are sick or whatever. Usually, you know, cause of course, it's me who has to kind of give yes. up my time because yeah. I don't I don't have a boss, I don't have anybody saying, "Well, you need right. to do this" or whatever. So, right. so that but that's yeah. So I you know I there are just open communication and uh, and working hard at it. I, I don't know that those are general remarks, but um, that's kind yeah. of that, it gives you a sense of the sort of yeah, the the give and take that it does really take to sustain
0: this. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean that was that was part of the reason why I wanted an interview. I know we had emailed a bit about this beforehand, but because because your path, you know, post PhD has been somewhat unorthodox, or at least what you're, you know what you're doing now mm-hmm. as a stay at home dad is unorthodox, which I mm-hmm. which I think is awesome. By the way, like I have so much respect for stay at home parents and just parenting in general. Um, and and the fact that yeah I mean I'm a I'm a father of one and doing that with four like that's that's awesome, um, but then and doing that and being like a very active young academic I think is just really impressive. But I'm I'm curious like, was this sort of a deliberate choice of yours? Like, why why um, have you opted for kind of this unorthodox setup? Like, what what has made you um, mm-hmm. want to sort of do things that way?
1: Well, yeah, so this will get into the juicy parts because um, <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, a, it's um, the answer is yes and no in the sense that yes, I have opted for it. And in another way, no, I haven't. And so let's, let's start yeah. with the no. Okay. I mean, you know, look, here's the thing. You're, you're going through PhD. You're, you're going through it. You're working hard. You feel like you're, you know, you're doing your very best. And yet at the same time, and I think a lot of people are going to relate to this out there, if you're in the program right now, or you just were, or you about to read, Everyone's heard all the horror stories, you know? Yeah. I just saw actually a really funny, it was funny to me at least, but um, it was like this, someone someone remarked, I think it was some comedian, was like, oh, you got a PhD in theology? Like, okay, so I'll take a, a latte with, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, uh, it's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, and you do, you hear these quote-unquote horror stories where it's like, you know, so-and-so has you know, all these publications and they've impressed all these people and blah, 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 and they can read all these languages, but like they can't find anything. And, 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 and here's where it's getting a little bit, you know, I needed to be, I need to be introspective and I'm willing to be open about it because I think it's useful. And, and it's something that's still ongoing with me. I knew that objectively, I knew that that was like the chances for me. And I don't know how far we want to go into this, but Let's just say there are given the kind of like the the academy not, to no one's surprise mirrors the polarization of of society yeah. and yeah. politics and ideology etc. Sure. So if you if you do not fall, I mean, there's a the question of merit. That's that's one thing. Whether or not merit does a whole lot, I, I tend to think it doesn't do very much. It's mm-hmm. like a bare minimum, but it really guarantees almost nothing. Um, but if you don't fall very clearly into certain boxes on any side i'm not saying it's one side in fact i know for from experience it is both sides so to speak that do the same thing even though they want to pretend that they're nothing like the other side Mm -hmm. um and if you don't immediately make sense to them um that's a liability because number one there's tons of phds and there's not a lot of jobs we all know that humanities are shrinking we all know that Theology even more so in certain ways, in, th- in philosophy. Yeah, we all know that. There's all these pressures, right? And then you've got the, the backroom politics, and you've got the nepotism, and you've got so-and-so's got this student, and he was my friend, and I want to do him a favor, so let's interview this person. Yeah. All that stuff goes on, whether or not people want to say that loud, it just does. Um and so you almost never, even when you're on the job market, you almost never know what's going on. And it's really futile to even try to pretend or to pry and to figure out what's going on behind the scenes. You do not know. And it can be as whimsical as you can imagine. So um so but so I know all this, right? I've already heard all this while I'm in my program. And even before I got into the program. But there's this little voice inside, and it's really, it's really a pride or something like that. At least for me, mm-hmm. I'm just speaking personally now. That kind of says, "Yes, I know there are those anecdotes. I've heard those stories, but you know, all you need is one to come through, and then you got a, you got a position, or you got a job, you mm-hmm. got a career, you got a future, at yeah. least in the traditional way. You know, like you said, the sort of orthodox way that it's supposed to go." If you work really hard, you impress the right people. You're not a total jerk, um, you know. You're you're personable or whatever, and you know yeah. you will you will eventually. And I heard this said to me several times from different people, and even even recently. You know, it's like it's gonna it's gonna work out eventually. Like event, it might take longer than it used to. Like say twenty years ago, you might not have offers before you even finish your PhD. Yeah. Although, if you're in a certain kind of Category, you will. I've seen people get offers before they even finish their dissertation. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a million reasons for that. Mostly ideological. Yeah. Um, but but it's um I believed that. What I came to realize later was I believed fundamentally that somehow it was going to be different. Somehow or I believe two things at once, and it's not consistent. This is the nature of self delusion, it's not consistent. Um <laughs> On the one hand, I I kind of almost still thought that merit was going to work. It's like an idealistic sort of thing. Uh, Even though all the evidence showed that that just is not the determinative factor. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, and this is kind of the deeper problem. This is when it kind of almost becomes a spiritual introspective journey, which it has Mm -hmm. been for me. Mm -hmm. I also thought, well, you know what? Even if it doesn't work out, I won't care. I won't care. Because you know what? And this is true. Some of what I'm about to say is true. Yeah. I've got at least these five years or whatever, studying stuff I love. I can maybe get a book out there. And if I never do it again, I mean, I said this, if I never do it again, you know, it was worth it. Which again, objectively, I, I do believe. And so that's what you tell yourself, at least I told myself was, you know, and I will be fine with that because in a sense, this is all a gift anyway. Which is which is all true. Like objectively, that's all true. But what what I didn't realize was how how um, ignorant of myself that I was. Because actually, I did care about that. <laughs> it turns out. You know. it, actually, it does turn out that I want to be recognized. That I want to be. Yeah. Um, you know. <laughs> Yeah. It turns out that I do want, you know, uh, the kind of perks of a job. And, of course, all of that is the grass is greener t- sort of thing. It's like you imagine, oh, wow, it would be great if I had this job. Because what I told myself yeah. was, you know what? Okay, I, 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 like, I can accept that the tenure track sort of dream job that people used to get 40, 30 years ago um, for just being really good at it is is not a thing anymore like it's very rare and yeah. it's going to be vanishingly rare but you know there are a lot of yeah. liberal arts colleges or small colleges i might just get a small uh a job at a small place and i'll have to work hard but at least you know that's still a career that's still something right and you still get the mm-hmm. academic calendar and all that well it just it turns out that even that you know i mean obviously is super hard to get and all of the forces uh that are at work that make it sort of not really always about merit is, is, um, are still at work there and they've just transferred from the higher to the lower and perhaps they were already always there, but it's like, um, and then, and so when those things have not worked out, I mean, I've been on the, I I was sort of on the job market for two, three years, Mm -hmm. you know, not, not, not doing as many applications as some people do, but doing a fair share and, and even getting to the final round on some getting phone interviews, getting, i went to campus a few times and, you know, and, and, uh, look, it could be that I'm just not a, a good, people don't, you know, maybe I'm not a good person. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I don't, you know, or it's just not a good fit. You know, it's usually what people yeah. end up saying. Like, hey, you know, it's because uh, you follow up and you ask for feedback. And I've done right. that many times. Yeah. It's like, look, I want to be better. I don't want to, I'm not, I don't want to needlessly offend people or whatever. But, um, but it's usually just that it's like, well, no, there's nothing you can do. I've actually been told, and it was actually by a fairly conservative um, institution, like well, the reason why you didn't get it is because you know you're a man and um and you're young and it's like yeah, okay, I, well I, I mean I can't do anything about that. So, so uh, and that's from a, that was from a conservative side. You know, it's not that's why I'm saying it's not one side or the other. They all do it, yeah. but um, so that's so what what I can so I could go on and on about you know all these grievances and it's unfair, blah blah blah. Woe is me. But the truth, what I really had to come to see, and this is where the, we transition from the no—like I didn't choose, I didn't opt for this way of being yeah. a young scholar—but now to to yes, right. And that was that was kind of spiritual work, if you, if you want to put it that way. That was um, that was hard one, and still even now I have you know times where I sort of as as it were to go through cycles or backslide. I mean, I'll put it that way. Um, but you have to come to say, look what, why do I want what I want? Mm -hmm. Like all these jobs I'm applying for, you know, and some of them are not, are objectively not great jobs. And perhaps I would move my entire family across the country and uproot us and get us away from family again, simply for a job at which I'm mostly miserable or I'm overworked Mm -hmm. or I'm, or I don't have all this time. Like I pretend like in my mind that I would. And so it's, it's kind of, I had to kind of unearth, And disinter a lot of my motives. And it very much turns out, at least for me, that a lot of what was motivating it wasn't necessarily the objective advantages of getting getting to a different place and having a title like Professor So-and-so. It really was sort of much more of a self-image thing. It was like Oh, I just want to be recognized. You know, it's it's odd yeah. if you say I'm an independent scholar or, you know, like right. I, I just published my book and it's like I had to tell him, like, look, I have no affiliation. So yeah. just put it on there that I'm translating Maximus's Letters for CUAP. And, right. you know, and, and you have to kind of, you know, there's been a lot of times where I've been invited to podcasts and it's like they begin and they're like, all right, so, you know, you're at, where are you at again? And it's like, uh, <laughs> home? I don't know. I'm at home? <laughs> like, like uh, I mean, I got a cool show G screen. Like, I don't know. Like, is it <laughs> Um, you know, that's, that's at home. I'm at home. So right, you know, not some, right. those are my kids like banging on the door or whatever, you know? And so, right. and so it's a little awkward and you have these weird moments, but honestly, it's only it, the awkwardness only becomes a, a positive source of discontent. If I've already indulged a kind of fantasy self image, which says, yeah. I really need to be recognized. I need to have certain titles and accolades or else I'm not valuable I'm not important yeah, and I can't be totally. considered a true theologian. And totally. that's all just completely wrong. Mm-hmm. And so I had, I had to, A, there was two levels of deception, self-deception. One was I had to realize that in fact, I am not some kind of a wild exception and I do care about this stuff, that I pretended that I wouldn't care about when things don't work out. That's like the way I thought, oh, well, if the, you know, whatever. And then B, I had to, I had to kind of work, like face those. And I had to, and I still do. I mean, there's still days where I'm kind of like, you know, uh, to think that way again. And, and that's, that's a part of the struggle now, like doing this unorthodox way where I'm a stay at home dad, uh, mm-hmm. I pick up, you know, I still, I'm doing two different translation projects. I've got a book I'm trying to write, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, still get asked to do articles and stuff like this for, for places Mm -hmm. that, that in order to do that, you have to find that peace that transcends understanding in the words of Paul. You have to find that contentment, but you can't do that except through yourself. Right. And that's what I had to come to see was, you know, like that year I taught high school. uh, I was actually just writing about this in an article the other day. Uh, that year I taught high school actually I loved the students. Actually, they were great students. I still talk to mm-hmm. some of them, you know, mm-hmm. have relationships with them. They're like, like just very good kids. And, yeah. and there was like no problem. Like if you want to teach high school, it was like a great place to be. It was great. but it was, you know, there's inherent limitations, like going from Maximus confessors, Christological metaphysics to try to talk about these kids about like, I don't know, the Catholic social tradition or something, the catechism and or something, the yes. catechism. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Like yeah. who's Thomas Aquinas or like what is yeah. happiness and all that. Right. Um, And so, uh, which, which was all good. And like, it was meaningful work and like, you know, kids came to me for things and, you know, and all that stuff. But, um, but it wasn't for me. Like I had to kind of see like it wasn't for me, Mm -hmm. but I was, I was writing about this other day. There was this moment particular I'll never forget. Where I don't know if you've heard of this, but it's like there's this website called Kahoot. <laughs> it's uh, uh-huh. yeah yeah Why would you right? It's uh, <laughs> it's like it's like it's it's where you can design these games for like unit reviews and stuff, right? Okay. And it's got these okay. goofy music. It's like this weird arcade music, and there's like bubble letters dancing across the screen. It's like you know. And I'm sitting there. I'm standing there in front of this <laughs> computer, and I and I've made this game for them to review for their test. And it's just playing over the speakers, this, this weird circus music. And the whole thing, like in a single instant, I got this like utter disgust and like resentment in my heart of like, this is what I worked for, huh? This (laughs) (laughs) it's all come to this (laughs) reading all those languages, going to all those conferences, delivering papers, trying to publish blah, blah, blah. So I can freaking run a Kahoot game. Right. (laughs) And I'm like, it's it, like the, the disparity between, you know, where, where even my lower aspirations, given the objective, you know, state of things right. v- versus where I, like where I had, where I had descended to the nadir, um, was so jarring to me in that yeah. moment that, it, and so unsettling that it was really a, kind of a moment of despair. And so, yeah. but, but then that that becomes eventually and this is what i want to say lastly and i'll stop because i've been going for a while on this but um it's uh you have to come to see and it's by god's grace and it's through prayer i think and it's through a lot of things Mm -hmm. you have to come to see that that despair is an opportunity this is like straight up fellow Kalia, like monastic tradition you have to come to see this is an opportunity of, of of true and healthy detachment Right. if you turn it to despair, it's an absolute hopelessness that actually is a vice of its own, and that can create a lot of problems and a mm-hmm. lot of destructive tendencies and patterns. But when you see it and I'm still working at this, I have not totally succeeded by any means, but when you start to see, hold on, this is actually an opportunity for for me to correct my self image, which is a deception it's a false image of myself yeah yeah yeah, then you can maybe find contentment, and when you do that then maybe you, if you can find contentment in that sort of despair, through that despair, mm-hmm. then that opens up the possibility for creative new situations and new forms of being, yeah. new forms of being a, a young scholar, new forms of doing yeah. theology. Where is theology going to be done in the next several decades? Is it just going to be in colleges and universities and seminaries? I don't think so. I don't think yeah. so. It's either not going to be done at all, or it's it, it's going to be... We're going to have to think through new forms and creatively, but the only way people can think through new forms and, to, and, and creative forms of life to do this is if they can get through that initial loss, that detachment, that mm-hmm. despair and and let it go and say, you know what, that maybe isn't who I truly am anyway. And perhaps it's not what I've really been called to do into and and to, in the way to fulfill that vocation. Yeah. Yeah. I need to be re- renew, reopen myself to new ways of doing it. And for me personally, I'm not, obviously this is so unique to my situation. I'm married to a nurse, you know, she's cool with, with me doing this work on the side and all that. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But that's where, where I've come was like, you know what, if I just get a day or so a week to do what I love to do and it satisfies me and fulfills me. And I'm with my four kids from morning to night, you know, all the other days and I'm getting you know, they're running me into the ground as they are want to do. <laughs> um, and I'm drinking loads of coffee every day and I'm yeah. shortening my lifespan by like drastically. Um, it's not that bad though. Like I can do that. I can do yeah. that. Some days I feel like it's, it is bad. And then other days I don't, but that kind of bigger, the bigger picture is that's the horizon of new possibilities. And that's sort of what I'm trying yeah. to embody now.
0: Yeah. No. Yeah, I think that's really wise. And yeah, that's I mean, that's part of the reason why I was so interested to interview you is because, I mean, as you talked about, like, these institutions and getting hired by them, right, it can be so polarized and, and be such like a political game. And I can only imagine that, you know, someone like you, like you're, you're, you know, you're catholic theologian you're deeply steeped in the you know the patristics but you're also engaging with like people like hegel and Bulgakov, and mm-hmm. um but you've also got this like universalist thing going on that probably scares people <laughs> yeah. um but it seems like your situation is conducive to like sort of having a freedom to be the kind of theologian that you actually are um mm-hmm. so I, yeah i guess i'm curious what what if and you kind of explored this a bit already but what are sort of some of the benefits of you know, your your sort the sort of way you've you've made for yourself of being an academic that's sort of unorthodox. What what have been the benefits of that situation?
1: Yeah, I mean I think the benefits are are what you just sort of uh, intimated there, which is that, you know, for one thing, I don't have a tenure file that I'm trying to compile. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: I don't have a tenure clock that I'm on. I mean I've had I've got friends that are on tenure track at places in you know they're stressed out because, some for some of them it's like they don't they don't know what they want to do or they don't know what they want to write on next or they are they're, they're at a loss and yet they're under this pressure. Mm-hmm. I don't have any of that. I mean, a, b. I've also known you know people. I did see this pretty often actually that there's kind of this paradoxical effect at making it in the academy. I don't think it has to be this way, but it very often is. Where say you get this tenure track job uh, at a great tier one institution, and you're and they hired you for your expertise, and all you teach is your expertise, and you've got grad students, and you've got seminars, and you know there's collaboration, and it's wonderful. It's like the great sort of ivory tower dream or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting though is how if you're not careful, almost you have to you have to intentionally resist this. You as a thinker, you become myopic. Yeah. And you become so narrow and you because you because your job like your situation doesn't force you to do anything other than than what you do. Like you just get your head down. You just do what you do. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. And some people just do just want to do that. That's fine. Mm -hmm. But I have never been one. I mean, as I said, right from the beginning, when I first got to historical theology, they were like, we're not sure if you're historical theology or you want to do systematics. And I'm kind of like, "Well, I don't know either, because for me, I don't think along disciplinary lines that way i mean i recognize the value of disciplines and methodology but for me it's the questions that that they're like like kind of the existential question like this is something maybe i'll say a little broadly and sorry this is meandering a little but um i've never really understood doing theology um for any other reason except to hang on to my faith (laughs) Mm -hmm. like like you know anselm says faith seeking understanding And the understanding, if it's true, and it's beautiful and compelling, should then reinforce the faith. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not like faith is a stage, or like, it's simply the portal into which you go, and then you sort of go into that space and do thinking, and it's basically unrelated to the portal you stepped through. Mm -hmm. It's, it is, for me at least, it's very much a sort of self-enclosed circle, where the, I, I, yes, I, I understand I have to have faith to believe. Or, or to understand, but then as, as I, the more I understand, the more that I fortify my faith. Mm-hmm. And I, and it, which, which then the negative way to put that is, um, I'm trying to remain faithful and I'm trying to hang on to belief. That is the deep sense of trust that faith really is mm-hmm. precisely by pursuing the Lord, our God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yeah. yeah. And so, and so, uh, disciplinary boundaries don't necessarily conform so easily to that kind of endeavor and so a benefit of the the situation i'm in is that nobody is telling me you have to teach this class you have to talk about this thing you got to teach this era you have to write this you know only on your guy i mean i've seen i've seen a guy uh not get tenure and basically his career almost tank completely because half of his publications weren't in the ex- on the exact figure he was hired for
0: wow okay
1: even though he had already published a book and several articles it, it didn't no. matter i'm sure there were other things going on there too but that was sort of an objective like thing they could point to and say well mm-hmm. that, that's the reason so that is that is an that's a crazy amount of like narrowness uh yeah. to to demand and and one thing that can often happen in these contexts is that you you can't actually be a thinker and retain your post I mean, I guess the idea would be you would get tenure, and then that would secure like you can kind of do your thinking in, in a more expansive, free way. But um, but you know, and if, if you can make work what I'm doing, in a certain sense, I already have the benefits of tenure without having <laughs> gone through the yeah, process. Of, yeah, yeah, so yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that you know, like I was just uh, yeah, like I'm uh, look, I'm on a translation team, I'm translating. Uh, we actually got grant money for this. I'm actually getting paid to do this part time. I'm translating shellings, uh late uh, lectures on the philosophy of revelation you know and then like i'm also translating maximus's letters for the fathers of the church for cuap and like these are two completely different things in a lot of ways different Mm -hmm. languages different eras different figures different topics different disciplines philosophy theology i don't know if i could do that and feel wise or prudent about it if um you know, if I was in like locked into some tenure track post that wasn't going to count any of this because it was like outside right. of your thing. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I've got this, I've got this, I think I have that freedom. Again, if you've got the spiritual health and the mental health in these sort of situations that can open up to this creative space.
0: Sure.
1: And, and yeah. And then there is that, like you've, you've mentioned, and I have no problem talking about this. There are these kind of, yeah. Um, there aren't the sort of pressures now. I've been places where it would have been fine, but like my kind of uh, say affinity for universalism, even as a Catholic, which I which I admit is sometimes a difficult balance to strike. Mm-hmm. Uh, but some people don't even want you to try. Mm-hmm. You know, some some people want you to just uh, basically say, "Well, that just simply is against the church," and so. Um, but here's the thing: to me, theology isn't catechesis. Um, they're related, and they should hopefully have a fruitful cooperative relationship but um it's it's literally it's it's almost never been the case in the actual development of the history of the of christian thought and and through the church councils and everything else where you know um somebody was simply just repeating what's already been said There, there had to be figures like my like my guy maximus was a monk he wasn't a leader he wasn't a priest he wasn't ordained a priest he wasn't a bishop he wasn't a leader at all he was a lay monk but he was in certain ways he was situated then to uh to kind of fight for the fights he did and take up the causes he did and he ended up suffering for it um and then yet was later vindicated 19 years after his death by the same church most of whose leaders at the time of his death were supporting his death so uh, or his suffering so Mm -hmm. i uh you know, it it isn't. It's, it it makes sense to me that some people feel like, well, you know, we got to get the basics. We got to be clear about what the church teaches and what it doesn't teach, and all that. That's fine, but uh, unless God's depths, which according to First Corinthians two one and two, we we have access to by the Spirit, which is within us, who searches even the right. depths of God, right? Which is what he mm-hmm. says. Because for you have the mind of Christ, right? Who has instructed the mind of the Lord? Well, you have the mind of Christ. So no, you haven't instructed the mind of the Lord. But in his great love and kenosis for us, he has gifted us even his self-knowledge in the, in, in potency, right? In the form of faith, right. Right. which can be actualized. So it's not you and your pride and because you're intelligent. It's, it, is, it is because he is good. That's why mm-hmm. we can learn more and more and deeper yeah. and deeper. And because he's infinite, that doesn't come to an end. It's like Carl Rahner, one of my, one of my, uh, my sort of, lately come to, to see as a sort of master. Carl mm-hmm. um, Rahner says, if all we ever do is repeat the formulas, it only means we've never understood them. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think that's true. How yeah. could you, how could you, claim, it, like, this links back to my initial, right, foray into the tradition for the sake of asking a question about tradi- uh, uh, scripture and how to interpret yeah. it. But one of the things you see over and over again in, say, the Alexandrian tradition, certainly in Maximus, is if if scripture is limited in the meanings that it can uh, yield, then it simply isn't divine because divinity is infinite. That that doesn't mean that anything goes, but it does mean that what goes isn't numbered, isn't limited. Those are different things. And I would say, why would that be any different for a divinely inspired tradition? for a living church for the body of Christ through the ages. If you ever came to a point where you said, well, we've got it now it's over. Mm-hmm. We've understood it all. Certainly. That's not even what Vatican two teaches like, uh, you know, in it's doctrine of ecumenism specifically says that that's not true, but, um, or Dei Verbum. But, um, yeah, so it's uh, so, so anyway, all, all that to say it's funny, but here, here's my, here's my point. That was a long way to say a lot of people are okay with that in theory. <laughs> it sounds nice to say, yeah, yeah, we gotta explore the depths. Sure, 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 we gotta yeah, yeah, we don't totally understand everything and maybe we have to even reconceive or revisit things that we thought we completely and totally understood or comprehended. Everyone likes that in theory because it sounds, you know, kinda true and like, okay, yeah, I don't wanna I don't wanna pretend we can grasp everything totally and once and for all. But when people actually do it or attempt to do it, and to do it responsibly, I'm not talking about just making stuff up. And I'm not talking about just trying to like, like that person I I mentioned before, you know, say, Oh now I got to figure out how to make this theological. I I decided everything. I want to throw God at the end. Um, (laughs) it's a, it's not that it's, it's, there's gotta be a third way. There's gotta be something. I told my students this when, once I had students, (laughs) I used to say basically the so-called, you know, progressive or the so-called, and these are caricatures, but the so-called progressive and the so-called conservative these are just two different ways to stop thinking right because uh, if you're if you're super super traditional or conservative yeah. what you're saying is all i do is receive god's self-revelation in christ yeah. through the church and the deposit of faith i just simply receive it, it's passive all the yeah. thinking's been done for me there's nothing else to do i receive it yeah. like literally traditio tradere as, as passing on like like you get a ba- a, a, a bag of books and then you just, you know, or or maybe I should say a you know, bag of like gold or something. And then you just pass it on to the next person, and that's tradition. Um, yeah. And that and that really is just uh, a great excuse to stop thinking, to stop <laughs> contemplating the mysteries of Christ, um, because because you don't do anything; you're just passive. And I don't actually think anyone really is, but. But that's, a, that's like one model or one extreme that we need to avoid if we want to take seriously the injunction to contemplate the mysteries of Christ. For but sure. the, other w- the other way to stop thinking is to say, I don't need to engage the tradition and all that stuff that's outdated. I'm just going to go ahead and say whatever I already think and feel. Yeah. Okay, well, great. Then you don't have to think or, or question yourself about much, right? Again, these yeah. are caricatures. These are sort of – I don't know if anyone really falls into these entirely. Probably not. But – the, that is just a different way to stop thinking. Yeah. The difficulty is the middle, and and when people yeah. really do that and take that seriously, I have found that there's there's quite a few people. Not everybody. Some people are really invigorated by it. Um, again, some people I think share do share fundamentally my conviction that one of the main reasons to theology isn't simply to catechize other people, but actually to remain to to make your own faith vital, right? Yeah. To really hang on to it and make it alive and see it and live into it right um but um yeah so but when when people actually start doing that i do think it gets you know look from an institutional perspective it's hard to you know look how long did it take me just to describe that a lot of time well we're we're in the time of sound bites of slogans of quick marketing ads and so on um you know as an institution you don't have time for all that is this person fit the box or not do they fit the box or not right and that's what matters uh, very often so I, I yeah. have that freedom to not have to deal with all that, the bureaucracy and the marketing and all that.
0: Yeah, no. I. I yeah, this is really, really interesting. I, and I think like kind of along with what you're saying, that both both sides of this sort of partisan paradigm seem to be like um, seem almost seem to be like ha- have opposite. It, like opposite iterations of kind of a chronological snobbery almost like but they're the opposite ways of doing it so like the traditionalists almost prize history um the past at the expense of you know god's revelation in the present whereas you know the progressives do the opposite of that um, but this third way you're talking about right is, it kind of sounds a lot like the sort of the resource amount. School and I think like what you and Justin Coyle are doing in some ways like a continuation of that, but also a like a fresh iteration like you're talking about mm-hmm. um, of like like you're you guys are still going back to the patristics to the scholastics, but you're you're doing so in a fresh way and even I think moving moving the resource amount movement further along like it's a constructive offering I think um, that yeah I mean that's my very humble assessment but. Um, well that's high praise, so I think I think yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm partial to the resource mod guys, so I guess that makes me partial to, to you guys as well. Um <laughs> last question and then we can then we can wrap up. I know um both you and I probably um should go attend to our to our children um, <laughs> yeah. and drink some more coffee. I'm um, sure they're okay out there on yeah, the street. Yeah, they're they're <laughs> probably fine. It's still <laughs> the sun just rose here, so I she, mean you know, we pay taxes. Good. There you go. (laughs) Um, but my last question is, uh, for, for people who are maybe in PhD programs or for people who are fresh out of PhD programs who are sort of trying to discern they're going to make a way academically. Um, what, what advice would you give to these people who are trying to figure this out?
1: Yeah. So, and this is good because it'll sort of recapitulate some of what we said. Um, I really think, you know, look, if you can find a way, I mean, you have to ask yourself, why am I doing this? Why do I want to do this? I do not regret anything I've done. Mm -hmm. So I would do it all over again, even knowing that I was going to land here in my downstairs half office as a stay at home dad, like I would still do it all. And so, so nothing I say takes away from that. I I think there's such inherent value. I wouldn't trade it. So, so I'm going to say that up front. However, It really is necessary for, for someone who's going into it or just starting it to say to really as best as you can, however you can do it, however you found works best to evaluate your motives, like your desires and say, what, what am I really, what am I wanting out of this? And, you know, there's always going to, it's going to be a process. And at least for me, it took me a long time to even uncover some of those deeper motives that I had pretended weren't there. Um, but, you know, so as much as that work you can do, like, up front or as you go, the better, the better that, mm-hmm. because you won't, you won't experience the fallout if and when um, certain things don't work out the way that you, maybe even your attenuated expectations still might uh, not go that way. Like, um, you know, there are, there's some people that, you know, if I was speaking to certain people specifically, depending on certain um, factors or features about them, um, I might say, you know, you, you have less to worry about or more to worry about or whatever. Um, the other thing I would say, I'm going to say this just because I, you know, hopefully it doesn't make anybody mad, but whatever. I'm going to say, oh, dad, I can say what I want. Uh, <laughs> um, that's the freedom here. Um, I'm embodying <laughs> it right now. Um, it's, uh, it's, um, there are exceptions to this. Okay. I'll just say this, but anybody that got a job, I say a tenure track job, like 10 years ago and before. Mm -hmm. probably don't listen to anything they say. (laughs) Mm, Wow, okay. Um, You know, I mean, look, some of them are self-aware enough to realize, like, like, like everyone will say things like, yeah, it's a different world. Like, oh man, you guys have to face stuff. But then the same people I've heard and other people have heard, like, will say, you know, just hang in there. Like, well, why? But like, you know, uh, like, it worked out for you like 20 years ago or something. But like, um, um, yeah, it's... uh, it's very hard for them to understand. And I think there's a, I'm gonna really go out on a limb here and say, sometimes I think it's because it's somewhat, uh, it would lead to certain sort of self-reflection that's uncomfortable. Hmm. If if they think too deeply about the way things are now, it immediately starts to dredge up the way it has been, how it's come to be that way. And that is often over the course of their career. And of course, no individual should feel the burden of like a systematic, systematic issues mm-hmm. or systemic issues of course i don't i don't mean that i'm just i'm just saying that for for a lot of people i've i've, I've sensed this like uh, resistance this like maybe even unreflective resistance to take too seriously the dire state of things now yeah yeah and so for for what so my point is whether intentionally or unintentionally i just have found that most not all but most of those people that have kind of reaped the benefits and came into their career 10 years and before now, they, they just can't, they can't engage with complete transparency and honesty and they don't, a, and then B they don't, they just don't know what to say. And I, and I, that's the part where I'm empathetic towards them, right? Like I'm not, it's not all about blaming the, you know, the prior generation or something. It's also like, I get it. You're in a situation, um, where you don't know what it's like to to, to face what we're facing now. And you just don't have anything to say. You have no guidance. And anytime you say anything, it's just gonna be general or it's gonna be trite or it's going to be even inaccurate. I've even had experiences where it's just like, wow, that's just not helpful at all. Mm -hmm. And so um, you know, I would say better to find recently people that have recently gotten a job who very much know what it was like and kind of actually know immediately the luck that's involved yeah. with them even getting it because it yeah. creates a sort of humility and an honesty of frankness that's really useful and those have been the people that i've really have really helped me the most uh, as well so i'd say seek those people out younger uh, newly minted phds and people who just got jobs or, or or people who did five six seven years ago so that's another thing i would say and then the final thing would be um you just make sure that whatever sacrifices you're making are worth it. Mm. That, that that sort of ties it all together because you're talking about yeah. why am I doing this, right? The desire, and then you're trying to say like, what are your expectations, and who do you talk to about those expectations for yourself yeah. and your your projected career or situation afterwards? That needs to be summed up by saying, you know, like like I said, your whole family has to be involved. If you have a significant other, or even if you're just married, you don't have kids, whatever. All that stuff because this is a this is a big endeavor and it's a lot of work and it's Mm -hmm. a lot of it's demanding and it's uh, if it's if it's a good program it is that Mm -hmm. and it's worth doing but it's not worth sacrificing any of those other things that make you a whole person it is not worth that and so uh i would say reflect long and hard on on each of those three things Mm.
0: thank you yeah no that's super super helpful um yeah thank you so much this has been a lot of fun i think um we i mean i'd love to have you on again i think it'd be fun maybe to get you and justin Coyle on together at some point so yeah, he's um, my boy yeah yeah <laughs> I've, I've chatted with him a bit on like instagram i i actually took a class at mount angel um, oh, cool. But, but not with him and so i haven't actually met him in person but it'd be it'd be yeah. fun to chat with both of you guys so anyways he's thank a, you he's a great
1: guy yeah
0: yeah yeah that's what i hear that's what i hear so thank you so much and, and god bless thank you very much Thanks for listening to The Theology Mill, brought to you by Whitfenstock Publishers. If you liked what you heard and would like to hear more, you can subscribe to our show, where we have lots more content coming your way. I'm your host, Zach Mickel, signing off on this episode of The Theology Mill. We hope to see you again to share a drink and talk all things theology. Until then, good friends, God bless, and we'll see you soon.